0: Be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading the final chapters, chapters 26 and 27, of The Phantom of the Opera, by Gaston Leroux. In the last chapter, the Persian and Monsieur Chagny uncovered Eric's devilish plot to destroy the opera house. In this chapter, we will discover the final fate of the opera ghost. These last chapters have some haunting themes and dialogue that some listeners may find unsettling. So, first, let's make sure we're ready for bed. If you haven't already, find yourself somewhere cosy to listen, be it in your bed, or in a chair, or elsewhere. And make yourself as comfortable as possible, either lying down, sitting up, eyes open or eyes closed, we all fall asleep in our own time and in our own way, so while you're on your journey to sleep, all you'll have to do is listen to the sound of my voice. And so, let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in, for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 26 The End of the Ghost's Love Story The previous chapter marks the conclusion of the written narrative which the Persian had left behind him. Notwithstanding the horrors of a situation which seemed definitely to abandon them to their deaths, Monsieur de Chagny and his companion were saved by the sublime devotion of Christine Day. And I had the rest of the story from the lips of the derogger himself, when I went to see him. He was still living in his little flat in the Rue de Rivoli, opposite the Tuileries. He was very ill, and it required all my ardour as an historian, plagued to the truth, to persuade him to live the incredible tragedy over again for my benefit. His faithful old servant Darius showed me to him. The Doroga received me at a window overlooking the garden of the Tuileries. He still had his magnificent eyes, but his poor face looked very worn. He had shaved the whole of his head, which was usually covered with an astrakhan cap. He was dressed in a long, plain coat and amused himself by unconsciously twisting his thumbs inside his sleeves, but his mind was quite clear and he told me his story with perfect lucidity. It seemed that, when he opened his eyes, the duroga found himself lying on a bed. Monsieur de Chagny was on a sofa beside the wardrobe. An angel and a devil were watching over them. After the deceptions and delusions of the torture chamber, the precision of the details of that quiet little middle-class room seemed to have been invented for the express purpose of puzzling the mind of the mortal, rash enough to stray into the abode of the living nightmare. The wooden bedstead, the waxed mahogany chairs, the chest of drawers, those brasses, the little square antimacassars carefully placed on the backs of the chairs, the clock on the mantelpiece, and the harmless-looking ebony casket at either end. Lastly, the what-not filled with shells, with red pin cushions, with mother-of-pearl boats, and an enormous ostrich egg. The whole discreetly lighted by a shaded lamp, standing on a small round table. This collection of ugly, peaceable, reasonable furniture. At the bottom of the opera cellars bewildered the imagination more than all the late fantastic happenings. And the figure of the masked man seemed all the more formidable in this old-fashioned, neat and trim little frame. It bent down over the Persian and said, in his ear, Are you better, Daroga? You are looking at my furniture. It is all that I have left of my poor, unhappy mother. Christine Day did not say a word. She moved about noiselessly, like a sister of charity who had taken a vow of silence. She brought a cup of cordial, or of hot tea, he did not remember which. The man in the mask took it from her hands and gave it to the Persian. Monsieur de Chagny was still sleeping. Eric poured a drop of rum into that Doroga's cup and, pointing to the Viscount, said, He came to himself long before we knew if you were still alive, Doroga. He is quite well. He is asleep. We must not wake him. Eric left the room for a moment, and the Persian raised himself on his elbow, looked around him, and saw Christine Day sitting by the fireside. He spoke to her, called her, but he was still very weak and fell back on his pillow. Christine came to him, laid her hand on his forehead, and went away again, and the Persian remembered that, as she went, She did not give a glance at Monsieur de Chagny, who, it is true, was sleeping peacefully, and she sat down again in her chair by the chimney corner, silent as a sister of charity who had taken a vow of silence. Eric returned with some little bottles which he placed on the mantelpiece, and, again in a whisper so as not to wake Monsieur de Chagny, he said to the Persian, after sitting down and feeling his pulse. You are now saved, both of you, and soon I shall take you up to the surface of the earth to please my wife. Thereupon he rose without any further explanation and disappeared once more. The Persian now looked at Christine's quiet profile under the lamp. She was reading a tiny book with gilt edges, like a religious book. There are editions of the imitation that looked like that. The Persian still had in his ears the natural tone in which the other had said, to please my wife. Very gently, he called her again, but Christine was wrapped up in her book and did not hear him. Eric returned, mixed the Doroga a draught, and advised him not to speak to his wife again, nor to anyone, because it might be very dangerous to everybody's health. Eventually, the Persian fell asleep, like Monsieur de Chagny, and did not wake until he was in his own room, nursed by his faithful Darius, who told him that, on the night before, he was found propped against the door of his flat, where he had been brought by a stranger, who rang the bell before going away. As soon as the Duroga recovered his strength and his wits, he sent to Count Felipe's house to inquire after the Viscount's health. The answer was that the young man had not been seen, and that Count Felipe was dead. His body was found on the bank of the Opera Lake, on the Rue Scribes side. The Persian remembered the requiem mass which he had heard from behind the wall of the torture chamber and had no doubt concerning the crime and the criminal. Knowing Eric as he did, he easily reconstructed the tragedy, thinking that his brother had run away with Christine Day Felipe had dashed in pursuit of him along the Brussels road, where he knew that everything was prepared for the elopement. Failing to find the pair, he hurried back to the opera, remembered Raoul's strange confidence about his fantastic rival, and learned that the Viscount had made every effort to enter the cellars of the theatre, and that he had disappeared. Leaving his hat in the Prima Donna's dressing room beside an empty pistol case. And the Count, who no longer entertained any doubt of his brother's madness, in his turn darted into the infernal underground maze. This was enough, in the Persian's eyes, to explain the discovery of the Comte de Chagny's corpse on the shore of the lake, where the siren, Eric's siren, kept watch. The Persian did not hesitate, he determined to inform the police. Now the case was in the hands of an examining magistrate called Faure, an incredulous, commonplace, superficial sort of person. I write as I think, with a mind utterly unprepared to receive a confidence of this kind. Monsieur Faure took down the derogers' dispositions, and proceeded to treat him as a madman. Despairing of ever obtaining a hearing, the Persian sat down to write. As the police did not want his evidence, perhaps the press would be glad of it, and he had just written the last line of the narrative I have quoted in the preceding chapters when Darius announced the visit of a stranger who had refused his name, who would not show his face. And declared simply that he did not intend to leave the place until he had spoken to the Daroga. The Persian at once felt who his singular visitor was and ordered him to be shown in. The Daroga was right, it was the ghost, it was Eric. He looked extremely weak and leaned against the wall as though he were afraid of falling. Taking off his hat, he revealed a forehead white as wax. The rest of the horrible face was hidden by the mask. The Persian rose to his feet as Eric entered. Murderer of Count Felipe, what have you done with his brother and Christine Day? Eric staggered under this direct attack, kept silent for a moment, dragged himself to a chair And heaved a deep sigh, then speaking in short phrases and gasping for breath between the words. Doroga, don't talk to me about Count Felipe. He was dead by the time I left my house. He was dead when the siren sang. It was An accident. A sad, a very sad accident. He fell very awkwardly, but simply and naturally, into the lake. You lie, shouted the Persian. Eric bowed his head and said, I have not come here. To talk about Count Felipe, but to tell you that I am going to die. Where are Raoul de Chagny and Christine Day? I am going to die. Raoul de Chagny and Christine Day. Of love, Doroga, I am dying. Of love. That is how it is. Loved her so. And I love her still, Doroga. And I am dying of love for her. I. I tell you. If you knew how beautiful she was. When she let me kiss her. Alive. I. It was the first time, Doroga. The first time I ever kissed a woman. Yes, alive. I kissed her alive. And she looked as beautiful as if she had been dead. The Persian shook Eric by the arm. Will you tell me if she is alive or dead? Why do you shake me like that? asked Derek, making an effort to speak more connectedly. I tell you that I am going to die. Yes, I kissed her alive. And now she is dead? I tell you I kissed her just like that, on the forehead and she did not draw back her forehead from my lips. Oh, she is a good girl. As to her being dead, I don't think so, but it has nothing to do with me. No, no, she's not dead, and no one shall touch a hair on her head. She is a good, honest girl, And she saved your life, Daroga. at a moment when I would not have given two pence for your Persian skin. As a matter of fact, nobody bothered about you. Why were you there with that little chap? You would have died as well as he. My word, how she entreated me for her little chap. But I told her that, as she had turned the scorpion, she had, through that very fact, and of her own free will, become engaged to me, and that she did not need to have two men engaged to her, which was true enough. As for you, you did not exist, you had ceased to exist, I tell you and you were going to die with the other. Only, mark me, Daroga, when you were yelling like the devil because of the water, Christine came to me with her beautiful blue eyes wide open and swore to me, as she hoped to be saved, that she consented to be my living wife. Until then, in the depths of her eyes, I had always seen my dead wife. It was the first time I saw my living wife there. She was sincere as she hoped to be saved. She would not kill herself. It was a bargain. Half a minute later, all the water was back in the lake. And I had a hard job with you, Doroga. For, upon my honor, I thought you were done for. However, there you were. It was understood that I was to take you both up to the surface of the earth. When, at last, I cleared the Louis Philippe room of you, I came back alone. "'What have you done with the Vicomte de Chagny?" asked the Persian, interrupting him. "'Ah, uh, you see, Doroga, I couldn't carry him up like that at once. "'He was a hostage, but I could not keep him in the house on the lake either because of Christine. "'So I locked him up comfortably. I chained him up nicely.' A whiff of Mazenderan scent had left him as limp as a rag, in the Communists' dungeon, which is in the most deserted and remote part of the opera, below the fifth cellar, where no one ever comes, and no one ever hears you. Then I came back to Christine. She was waiting for me. Eric here rose solemnly, Then he continued, but as he spoke, he was overcome by all his former emotion and began to tremble like a leaf. Yes, she was waiting for me, waiting for me erect and alive, a real, living bride, as she hoped to be saved, and when I came forward, more timid than A little child. She did not run away. No, no. She stayed. She waited for me. I even believe, Doroga, that she put out her forehead. A little. Oh, not much. Just a little. Like a living bride. And... And I kissed her. I... I. And she did not die. Oh, how good it is, Doroga, to kiss somebody on the forehead. You can't tell. But I. I. My mother, Doroga. My poor, unhappy mother. Would never let me kiss her. She used to run away and throw me my mask nor any other woman ever ever ah you can understand my happiness was so great i cried and i fell at her feet crying and i kissed her feet her little feet crying you're crying too deroga and she cried also. The angel cried. Eric sobbed aloud, and the Persian himself could not retain his tears in the presence of that masked man, who, with his shoulders shaking and his hands clutched at his chest, was moaning with pain and love by turns. Yes, Doroga. I felt her tears flow on my forehead, on mine, mine, they were soft, they were sweet, they trickled under my mask, they mingled with my tears in my eyes, yes, they flowed between my lips, listen Doroga, listen to what I did. I tore off my mask so as not to lose one of her tears, and she did not run away, and she did not die. She remained alive, weeping over me, with me. We cried together. I tasted all the happiness the world can offer, and Eric fell into a chair, choking for breath. And I am not going to die yet. Presently I shall, but let me cry. Listen, Daraga, listen to this. While I was at her feet, I heard her say, Poor unhappy Eric. And she took my hand. I had become no more, you know, than a poor dog ready to die for her. I mean it, doraga I held in my hand a ring, a plain gold ring, which I had given her, which she had lost, and which I had found again. A wedding ring, you know. I slipped it into her little hand, and said, There, take it. Take it for you, and him. It shall be my wedding present, a present from your poor, unhappy Eric. I know you loved the boy. Don't cry anymore. She asked me, in a very soft voice, what I meant. Then I made her understand that, where she was concerned, I was only a poor dog, ready to die for her but that she could marry the young man when she pleased, because she had cried with me and mingled her tears with mine. Eric's emotion was so great that he had to tell the Persian not to look at him, for he was choking and must take off his mask. The Doroga went to the window and opened it. His heart was full of pity. But he took care to keep his eyes fixed on the trees in the gardens lest he should see the monster's face i went and released the young man eric continued and told him to come with me to christine they kissed before me in the louis philippe room christine had my ring i made christine swear to come back one night when I was dead, crossing the lake from the rue Screbe side, and marry me in the greatest secrecy with the gold ring, which she was to wear until that moment. I told her where she would find my body and what to do with it. Then Christine kissed me, for the first time, herself, here on the forehead. Don't look, Doroga. Here, on the forehead, on my forehead, mine. Don't look, Doroga. And they went off together. Christine had stopped crying. I alone cried, Doroga. If Christine keeps her promise, she will come back soon. The Persian asked him no questions. He was quite reassured as to the fate of Raoul Chagny and Christine Day. No one could have doubted the word of the weeping Eric that night. The monster resumed his mask and collected his strength to leave the Doroga. He told him that, when he felt his end to be very near at hand, he would send him In gratitude to the kindness the Persian had once shown him, that which he held dearest in the world, all Christine Day's papers, which she had written for Raoul's benefit and left with Eric, together with a few objects belonging to her, such as a pair of gloves, a shoe buckle, and two pocket handkerchiefs. In reply to the Persian's questions, Eric told him that the two young people, as soon as they found themselves free, had resolved to go and look for a priest in some lonely spot where they could hide their happiness, and that, with this object in view, they had started from the northern railway station of the world. Lastly, Eric relied on the Persian as soon as he received the promised relics and papers to inform the young couple of his death and to advertise it in the epoch. That was all. The Persian saw Eric to the door of his flat and Darius helped him down to the street. A cab was waiting for him. Eric stepped in and the Persian, who had gone back to the window, Heard him say to the driver, Go to the opera. And the cab drove off into the night. The Persian had seen the poor, unfortunate Eric for the last time. Three weeks later, the Epoch published this advertisement Eric is dead. Chapter 27. Epilogue. I have now told the singular but voracious story of the Opera Ghost. As I declared on the first page of this work, it is no longer possible to deny that Eric really lived. There are today so many proofs of his existence within the reach of everybody that we can follow Eric's actions logically through the whole tragedy of the Chagny's. There is no need to repeat here how greatly the case excited the capital. The kidnapping of the artist, the death of the Comte de Chagny, under such exceptional conditions, the disappearance of his brother, the drugging of the gas man at the opera and of his two assistants – what tragedies, what passions! What crimes had surrounded the idol of Raoul and the sweet and charming Christine? What had become of that wonderful, mysterious artist of whom the world was never, never to hear again? She was represented as the victim of the rivalry between two brothers, and nobody suspected what had really happened. Nobody understood that, As Raoul and Christine had both disappeared, both had withdrawn far from the world to enjoy a happiness which they would not have cared to make public after the inexplicable death of Count Felipe. They took the train one day from the northern railway station of the world. Possibly, I too shall take the train at that station, one day, and go and seek around thy lakes. O Norway, O silent Scandinavia, for the perhaps still living traces of Raoul and Christine, and also of Mama Valerius, who disappeared at the same time. Possibly, someday, I shall hear the lonely echoes of the north repeat the singing of her who knew the angel of music, Long after the case was pigeonholed by the unintelligent care of Monsieur Le Juge d'Instruction Foire, the newspapers made efforts, at intervals, to fathom the mystery. One evening paper alone, which knew all the gossip of the theatres, said, We recognize the touch of the opera ghost. And even that was written by way of irony, The Persian alone knew the whole truth and held the main proofs, which came to him with the pious relics promised by the ghost. It fell to my lot to complete these proofs with the aid of the Doroga himself. Day by day I kept him informed of the progress of my inquiries, and he directed them. He had not been to the opera for years and years. But he had preserved the most accurate recollection of the building, and there was no better guide than he possible to help me discover its most secret recesses. He also told me where to gather further information, whom to ask, and he sent me to call on Monsieur Polanyi at a moment when the poor man was nearly drawing his last breath I had no idea that he was so very ill, and I shall never forget the effort which my question about the ghost produced upon him. He looked at me as if I were the devil, and asked only in a few incoherent sentences, which showed, however, and that was the main thing, the extent of the perturbation which O.G., in his time had brought into that already very restless life, for Monsieur Polanyi was what people called a man of pleasure. When I came and told the Persian of the poor result of my visit to Monsieur Polanyi, the doroga gave a faint smile and said, Polanyi never knew how far that extraordinary black guard of an Eric humbugged him. The Persian, by the way, spoke of Eric sometimes as a demigod, and sometimes as the lowest of the low. Polanyi was superstitious, and Eric knew it. Eric knew most things about the public and private affairs of the opera. When Monsieur Polanyi heard a mysterious voice tell him, in Box 5, of the manner in which he used to spend his time, and abuse his partner's confidence, he did not wait to hear any more. Thinking at first that it was a voice from heaven, he believed himself damned, and then, when the voice began to ask for money, he saw that he was being victimised by a shrewd blackmailer to whom Debenet himself had fallen a prey. Both of them, already tired of management for various reasons, went away without trying to investigate further into the personality of that curious Soji, who had forced such a singular memorandum book upon them. They bequeathed the whole mystery to their successors and heaved a sigh of relief when they were rid of a business that had puzzled them without amusing them in the least. I then spoke of the two successors, and expressed my surprise that, in his memoirs of a manager, Monsieur Moncharmin should describe the opera ghost's behaviour at such length in the first part of the book, and hardly mention it at all in the second. In reply to this, the Persian who knew the memoirs as thoroughly as if he had written them himself, observed that I should find the explanation of the whole business if I would just recollect the few lines which Moncharmin devotes to the ghost in the second part aforesaid. I quote these lines, which are particularly interesting, because they describe the very simple manner in which the famous incident of the 20,000 francs was closed. As for OG, some of whose curious tricks I have related in the first part of my memoirs. I will only say that he redeemed by one spontaneous, fine action all the worry which he had caused my dear friend and partner, and, I am bound to say, myself. He felt, no doubt, that there are limits to a joke, especially when it is so expensive and when the Commissary of Police has been informed, for, at the moment when we had made an appointment in our office with Monsieur Mifroid, to tell him the whole story, a few days after the disappearance of Christine Day, we found, on Richard's table, a large envelope inscribed in red ink, with OG's compliments. It contained the large sum of money which he had succeeded in playfully extracting, for the time being, from the treasury. Richard was at once of the opinion that we must be content with that and drop the business. I agreed with Richard. All's well that ends well. What do you say, O.G.? Of course, Monshamin especially after the money had been restored, continued to believe that he had, for a short while, been the butt of Richard's sense of humour, whereas Richard, on his side, was convinced that Monshamin had amused himself by inventing the whole of the affair of the opera ghost in order to revenge himself for a few jokes. I asked the Persian to tell me by what trick the ghost had taken the 20,000 francs from Richard's pocket, in spite of the safety pin. He replied that he had not gone into the little details, but that, if I myself cared to make an investigation on the spot, I should certainly find the solution to the riddle in the manager's office, by remembering that Eric had not been nicknamed the trapdoor lover for nothing. I promised the Persian to do so as soon as I had time, and I may as well tell the reader at once that the results of my investigation were perfectly satisfactory, and I hardly believed that I should ever discover so many undeniable proofs of the authenticity of the feats ascribed to the ghost. The Persian's manuscript. Christine Day's papers, the statements made to me by the people who used to work under Monsieur Richard and Moncharmin, by Little Meg herself, the worthy Madame Giri, I am sorry to say, is no more, and by Sorelli, who is now living in retirement, all the documents relating to the existence of the ghost, which I propose to deposit in the archives of the opera have been checked and confirmed by a number of important discoveries, of which I am justly proud. I have not been able to find the house on the lake, Eric having blocked up all the secret entrances. On the other hand, I have discovered the secret passage of the communists, the planking of which is falling to pieces in parts, and also the trapdoor through which Raoul and the Persian penetrated into the cellars of the Opera House. In the Communists' dungeon, I noticed numbers of initials traced on the walls by the unfortunate people confined in it, and among these were an R and a C, RC, Raoul de Chagny. The letters are there to this day. If the reader will visit the opera one morning, and ask leave to stroll where he pleases without being accompanied by a stupid guide. Let him go to box 5 and knock with his fist or stick on the enormous column that separates this from the stage box. He will find that the column sounds hollow. After that, do not be astonished by the suggestion that it was occupied by the voice of the ghost. There is room inside the column for two men. If you are surprised that, when the various incidents occurred, no one turned round to look at the column, you must remember that it presented the appearance of solid marble, and that the voice contained in it seemed rather to come from the opposite side, for, as we have seen, the ghost was an expert ventriloquist. The column was elaborately carved and decorated with the sculptor's chisel, and I do not despair of one day discovering the ornament that could be raised or lowered at will, so as to admit of the ghost's mysterious correspondence with Mademoiselle Giri and his generosity. However, all these discoveries are nothing, to my mind, compared with that which I was able to make. In the presence of the acting manager in the manager's office within a couple of inches from the desk chair and which consisted of a trap door the width of a board in the floor and the length of a man's forearm and no longer a trap door that falls back like the lid of a box a trap door through which i can see a hand come and dexterously fumble at the pocket Of a swallow-tail coat. That is the way the 40,000 francs went, and that also is the way by which, through some trick or other, they were returned. Speaking about this to the Persian, I said, so we may take it, as the 40,000 francs were returned, that Eric was simply amusing himself with the memorandum book of his "'Don't you believe it?' he replied. Eric wanted money. Thinking himself without the pale of humanity, he was restrained by no scruples, and he employed his extraordinary gifts of dexterity and imagination, which he had received by way of compensation for his extraordinary ugliness, to prey upon his fellow men.' His reason for restoring the 40,000 francs of his own accord was that he no longer wanted it. He had relinquished his marriage with Christine Day. He had relinquished everything above the surface of the earth. According to the Persian's account, Eric was born in a small town not far from Rhone. He was the son of a master mason. He ran away in early age from his father's house, where his ugliness was a subject of horror and terror to his parents. For a time, he frequented the fairs where a showman exhibited him as the living corpse. He seemed to have crossed the whole of Europe from fair to fair, and to have completed his strange education as an artist and a magician at the fountainhead of art and magic among the travelers. A period of Eric's life remained quite obscure, he was seen at the fair of Nizhny Novgorod, where he displayed himself in all his hideous glory. He already sang as nobody on this earth had ever sung before. He practiced ventriloquism, and gave displays of legerdemain so extraordinary that the caravans returning to Asia talked about it during the whole length of their journey. In this way, his reputation penetrated the walls of the palace at Mazenderan, where the little sultana, the favourite of the Shah in Shah, was boring herself to death. A dealer in furs, returning to Samarkand from Nizhny Novgorod, told of the marvels which he had seen performed in Eric's tent. The trader was summoned to the palace. And the Doroga of Mazenderan was told to question him. The next Doroga was instructed to go and find Eric. He brought him to Persia, where for some months Eric's will was law. He was guilty of not a few horrors, for he seemed not to know the difference between good and evil. He took part calmly in a number of political assassinations and he turned his diabolical, inventive powers against the emir of Afghanistan, who was at war with the Persian Empire. The Shah took a liking to him. This was the time of the rosy hours of Mazenderan, of which the Daroga's narrative had given us a glimpse. Eric had very original ideas on the subject of architecture, and thought out a palace much as a conjurer contrives a trick casket. The Shah ordered him to construct an edifice of this kind. Eric did so, and the building appears to have been so ingenious that his majesty was able to move about in it unseen and to disappear without a possibility of the tricks being discovered. When the Shah-in-Shah found himself the possessor of this gem, He ordered Eric's yellow eyes to be put out, but he reflected that, even when blind, Eric would still be able to build so remarkable a house for another sovereign. As long as Eric was alive, someone would know the secret of the wonderful palace. Eric's death was decided upon, together with that of all the laborers who had worked under his order. The execution of this abominable decree devolved upon the Doroga of Mazenderan. Eric had shown him so slight services and procured him many a hearty laugh. He saved Eric by providing him with the means of escape, but nearly paid with his head for his generous indulgence. Fortunately for the Doroga, a corpse, half eaten by the birds of prey, Was found on the shore of the Caspian Sea and was taken for Eric's body because the Daroga's friends had dressed the remains in clothing that belonged to Eric. The Daroga was let off with the loss of the imperial favour and the confiscation of his property and an order of perpetual banishment. As a member of the royal house, however, He continued to receive a monthly pension of a few hundred francs from the Persian treasury, and on this he came to live in Paris. As for Eric, he went to Asia Minor and thence to Constantinople, where he entered the sultan's employment. In explanation of the services which he was able to render a monarch haunted by perpetual terrors, I need only say that it was Eric who constructed all the famous trap doors and secret chambers and mysterious strange boxes which were found in the Yildiz kiosk after the last Turkish revolution. He also invented those automata dressed like the Sultan and resembling the Sultan in all respects, which made people believe that the commander of the faithful was awake at one place when, in reality, he was asleep somewhere else. Of course, he had to leave the Sultan's service for the same reasons that made him fly from Persia. He knew too much. Then, tired of his adventurous, formidable, and monstrous life, he longed to be someone like everybody else, and he became a contractor, like an ordinary contractor, building ordinary houses with ordinary bricks. He tended for parts of the foundations in the opera. His estimate was accepted. When he found himself in the cellars of the enormous playhouse, his artistic, fantastic, wizard nature resumed the upper hand. Besides, was he not as ugly as ever? He dreamed of creating for his own a dwelling unknown to the rest of the earth where he could hide from men's eyes for all time. The listener knows and guesses the rest. It is all in keeping with this incredible and yet voracious story. Poor, unhappy Eric. Shall we pity him? Shall we curse him? He asked only to be someone like everyone else, but he was too ugly. And he had to hide his genius, or use it to play tricks with, when, with an ordinary face, he would have been one of the most distinguished of mankind. He had a heart that could have held the empire of the world, and, in the end, he had to content himself with a cellar. Ah yes, we must needs pity the opera ghost, I have prayed over his mortal remains, that God might show him mercy notwithstanding his crimes. Yes, I am sure, quite sure that I prayed beside his body, the other day, when they took it from the spot where they were burying the photographic records. It was his skeleton, I did not recognize it by the ugliness of the head. For all men are ugly when they have been dead as long as that, but by the plain gold ring which he wore, and which Christine Day had certainly slipped on his finger when she came to bury him in accordance with her promise. The skeleton was lying near the little well, in the place where the angel of music first held Christine Day fainting in his trembling arms, on the night when he carried her down to the cellars of the Opera House. And now, what do they mean to do with that skeleton? Surely they will not bury it in the common grave. I say that the place for the skeleton of the Opera Ghost is in the archives of the National Academy of Music. It is no ordinary skeleton. The End